0: Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 42. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's fifth and final piano concerto, the so-called Emperor Concerto, Opus 73. The year 1809 was a very unsettled one for Beethoven, as it was for all Viennese. The French were threatening as usual and some of the composer's friends and supporters had already abandoned the city. Most of the fifth concerto had apparently been completed before the French actually began their assault on the city, but Beethoven certainly knew what was coming and that impending military confrontation may have influenced the nature of the concerto to some extent. Of course, it certainly would not have been unusual for any concerto to exhibit some martial qualities. After all, even Beethoven's Violin Concerto had done that. But the fourth piano concerto in G major had really taken the opposite approach, lyrical and introspective rather than aggressive and militant. And now we see a return of the more martial qualities in the fifth concerto and we also see a return of the key of E-flat major, forever associated with the Eroica symphony. So is this another heroic work? Yes, to some extent. What it is not is a salute to Napoleon, its title notwithstanding. Because the title once again derives not from Beethoven himself, but from a later publisher or, a less likely scenario, from a French officer who, hearing the work as an audience member, declared loudly that the bold and confident work must surely be the emperor of piano concertos. You can understand the comment it is a grandiose work dedicated to the Archduke Rudolph that merges the form of the concerto with the length and scope of a symphony. But it's unlikely that Beethoven would have enjoyed that particular characterization of his work, since he had some time earlier lost his enthusiasm for the French Emperor himself. So the nickname is misleading at best. On to the music itself. The first movement, common time, marked allegro, and fortissimo, begins in a somewhat unusual way. Beethoven opens with a fully scored E flat tonic chord spread throughout the orchestral texture, a whole note tied to a quarter note in the second measure. That yields in the second measure to a robust, fully notated cadenza from the pianist over a fermata, swirling up the tonic triad from low in the bass clef into the piano's upper range, before hesitating at the high point and then descending by way of a repeated interval pattern surrounding the notes of the E-flat chord. The section finishes with a trill, a rapid ascending line, a slower, more expressive descent down the scale, and a fermata on an A-flat chord, the subdominant in the key. The second mini-cadenza, now based on an A-flat chord, also begins with rapid ascending arpeggios, but soon the left hand begins to double the right hand in sixths with another repeated figuration pattern that moves down the scale. More swirling scale lines are heard, this time in tenths, and we again finish with a slower moving espressivo line moving down the scale, this time harmonized in full chords, and concluding with a fermata on the dominant seventh chord. The final mini cadenza is a little different. It begins by ascending on thirds and octaves, this time marks toccato, before finally beginning to descend, again with a slower moving, more legato phrase. But this time there is another flurry of ascending scale fragments, moving quite high before beginning a swift descent to arrive at a cadence on E flat. I said that the movement begins in a somewhat unusual way, and that's because the pianist enters almost immediately, not waiting until the orchestral exposition has been completed. But of course that is not completely unprecedented. In the first movement of Mozart's Ninth Piano Concerto, the soloist also enters early, exchanging a few phrases with the orchestra before deferring to it for the rest of the exposition and more recently, the first movement of Beethoven's fourth piano concerto in G major begins with the soloist announcing the first phrase of the opening melody before handing things over to the orchestra. That instance was probably more remarkable than the early entrance of the piano here in Concerto Number 5, because here the soloist is really doing no more than setting the table for the first theme with those three mini-cadenzas on tonic subdominant and dominant seventh chords respectively. So now as we actually arrive at the first theme in the initial exposition, we quickly discover that things are actually going to proceed quite normally with the opening exposition handled by the orchestra alone. And speaking of that first theme, it's an interesting one which shows off its military bearing quickly with dotted notes and sforzando accents. Its seven measures in length presented forte and first violins with punctuating chords from the horns and lower strings. The first two bars contain two very distinctive motives. The first starts with a longer note on the tonic leading to a little triplet-based decorative turn ornamenting that note after which we ascend with two staccato eighths to land on the third scale degree. We'll call it motive 1A. All of these things that I'm going to refer to as motives could be broken into smaller sub-motives, but we'll keep it simple for now. The second measure presents a motive, we'll call it 1B, which begins on the 3rd scale degree and descends down a 6th with a pentatonic figure to a dotted 8th-16th combination on the dominant note, after which it then leaps back up to the tonic for a repeat of motive 1A. So measures 3 and 4 are basically a repeat of 1 and 2, but starting in measure 5, we hear something different. We'll call it motive C, but again it could easily be broken up into sub-motives. It starts with a half note on the leading tone, and moves up eventually to the 4th scale degree, in a pattern combining 8th notes and longer note values, introducing sforzando accents as it reaches its peak, before then moving back down to the tonic, where it arrives just as the clarinet begins its version of the theme. Here is the entire first statement, ending back on The Tonic. I let the excerpt go a little past the first theme into the transition that follows it. It's a powerful one, employing what I referred to as Motive 1b, but here based not on a pentatonic pattern but on a descending triad, and prefaced with a quicker upbeat figure, this one based on an ascending triad. This new motive, or new version of an older motive, is bandied about between strings and horns and, in the process, seems to be bringing about a modulation. After six bars a new idea is introduced, based this time on scalewise descending movement and characterized by distinctive staccato markings. We even hear a bit of imitation between the second violins and violas and the first violins and the momentum increases as a new version of this idea is repeated in pulsating sixteenth notes. But when it all comes to an end, we are not really where we expected to be. Here's the entire transition. I say not where we expected to be because we find ourselves in E flat minor for a sharply contrasting second subject. This new theme, delicate and just a little mysterious, is presented first in thirds between first and second violins and interlocks niftily with the accompaniment pattern in the lower strings, clarinets, and bassoons. It starts on the third scale degree and initially moves within a limited range frequently returning to its starting point. Eventually, it works its way up the scale to peak a fifth higher before coming back down. Here are the first eight bars prefaced by the last few bars of the transition leading to it. The first eight bars of the second theme end on the dominant chord and pass immediately to a new version of the theme, this one in the expected key of E flat major and largely transformed by its new instrumentation, featuring a rustic horn duet which jettisons the staccato markings in favor of a more legato approach. The accompaniment pattern in the strings also drops the interlocking pattern replacing it with a more lyrical counter-motive in the violins, although the timpani does soldier on with the remnants of the original interlocking pattern. This second version of the second theme also ends on a dominant chord and passes into another transition, still pianissimo, this one exploiting mode of 1a from the first theme. We hear it initially in the first violins and then immediately thereafter in the low strings, but the tonality is ambiguous for a little while as we begin to crescendo. Are we going back to E flat minor again? Not this time. After six measures, we're back securely, even triumphantly, in E flat major, where we encounter the beginning of the first subject again in the original key. If we're looking for a label for this, we might well think of it as a closing section, although within a few measures it almost takes on the identity of a miniature development section, with motive 1a developed sequentially and the tonality beginning to shift first toward B-flat minor, and then C minor. But mode of 1A eventually melts away and we hear a new theme. It's a simple one, marked piano and dolce, and based on a series of cascading scale fragments in the woodwinds. There's not that much to it, but it's quite effective in context. Here's the transition, leading to the introduction of the first theme and the developmental transition following it and then moving on to the much quieter new theme in the woodwinds. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt, the orchestral exposition does not conclude with the quieter woodwind theme, but rather crescendos into a passage which exploits motive 1b, among others, as well as the punctuating, dotted rhythms also heard in the first subject. It also introduces one final, very quiet and subtle theme in the first violins, one which Beethoven scholar Lewis Lockwood describes as hauntingly expressive. And which might be heard as a codetta. Motives from the first subject can still be heard against it, lower in the texture, but this new theme, quiet though it is, does make an impression before it slips to the side and the more emphatic dotted rhythm figures take control for the final measures of the orchestral exposition. Here's the theme in question, leading eventually to the entrance of the pianist on an extended upbeat phrase on the dominant which marks the beginning of the Soloist Exposition. Back securely in the original tonic of E-flat major, the soloist enters with its own highly embellished version of the first theme, one that quickly breaks away from that theme to hint at new tonal centers and introduce some new ideas, not completely unrelated to the first theme, but focusing initially on first inversion chords in dotted rhythm figures and staccato triplets. These merge into an almost cadenza-like flow of ascending figuration patterns and swirling scale lines as the orchestral strings enter demurely below the pianist, and we arrive 16 bars later at an emphatic cadence. Right at the end of my excerpt you heard a brief orchestral 2D section reintroducing the powerful theme from the first half of the transition. Soon, the pianist picks up the idea, at least the descending arpeggio part of it, in a much more delicate version over sustained string chords. This version also floats us into a new key, a surprising G-flat major temporarily, after which the pianist continues on with decorative arpeggio patterns while the woodwinds reintroduce the second part of the transition theme, staccato again as in its first appearance. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the piano again taking charge with a passage different than the one in the orchestral exposition, but serving the same function, preparing us for the second subject. Here's that more robust passage of sixteenth notes, mostly in sixths, by the pianist, taking us to a new and very delicately pianistic version of the second subject, arriving this time in B minor. This is followed by a quiet variation for piano with light orchestral accompaniment, leading to another statement of the second subject, notated in C-flat this time. In the orchestral exposition, this next statement was presented by a lyrical horn duet, but this time it's very different, presented by the entire orchestra minus the piano and taking on a distinctive march-like quality, played forte in the key of B-flat. Another quiet interlude of ascending arpeggios is followed by a more vigorous chromatically descending line in octaves by the pianist who then reintroduces motive 1a against those chromatic descending lines more virtuoso flourishes loud and soft continue until we arrive at the equivalent of the orchestral exposition closing section with its version of motive 1a Here's a little bit of the beginning of that section, with motive 1A echoing back and forth as Beethoven hints at one key after another. At the end of my excerpt, you'll hear a little of that quieter, lyrical descending theme in the woodwinds you heard earlier in the closing section of the orchestral exposition. And as we continue in this version of the closing section, we also encounter the lyrical theme marking a possible codetta that Lockwood so admired, and which plays an important role in the development section. Here is that gentle codetta melody which, after the return of the familiar punctuating dotted rhythm motive, passes to the soloist who ushers us gently into the development section. The development section begins in C minor, with the clarinet quietly quoting the first two bars of the first subject, motives 1a and 1b, against ascending arpeggios, a broken thirds pattern in the piano, and punctuating reiterations of the tonic note by the strings. As we continue on, motive 1b, based on the second bar of that first subject, is varied, descending at times by step sometimes chromatically rather than by triadic motion, and extended for a couple of bars. Motive a is then heard again in the solo flute, an octave higher four bars later. A similar pattern continues for the next several measures, as the bassoon and later oboe are assigned the melody over a variety of accompaniment patterns in the piano, some involving 16th note octave leaps rather than arpeggios. We move from C minor to G minor and F minor. Near the end, you heard an increase in urgency as some diminished chords were introduced, along with dotted rhythm figures in the strings, derived from Motive 1b and previously used as punctuating devices. Soon, we move into a section dominated by that dotted rhythm figure, played forte by the woodwinds and doubled by timpani. And once again sounding rather militant in nature. The woodwinds are answered by quite dramatic gestures from the pianist, fortissimo block chords low in the range, leading to dramatic descending staccato scale lines in multiple octaves, sometimes doubled by the strings. Here's a little of that section. <laughs> Of course, all that Sturm und Drang intensity can't be sustained indefinitely. The music quiets, and we shift gears dramatically with the appearance of the lovely Codetta theme, initially in the piano, but later in the clarinet and oboe. Motive 1A does continue to pop up beneath it in the low strings, serving to push the key up a step for each reappearance of the melody. but after three appearances of the sweetly lyrical codetta theme, it disappears. But the reminiscences of motive 1A do not. In fact, they become more frequent. First one each measure and then two. These are at first accompanied by delicate sixteenth note ascending arpeggios from the piano. But after seven bars, the piano drops out and the repetitions of motive 1A get more insistent and noisier. That leads us to a return of the opening chords and written out cadenza passage, somewhat varied this time, that began the whole movement as we head into the recapitulation. It features the same main thematic ideas, but of course the mixture is a little different this time. The pianist naturally remains at the forefront, sometimes delivering bombastic scale-wise or arpeggio-based solo passages that crescendo into powerful climaxes, and sometimes turning to whisper soft passages of great delicacy. It's an impressive recapitulation, but we are going to move on now to the slow movement. And it's an extraordinary one. In B major, not the expected key, common time and marked adagio un poco mosso it opens with a wonderful melody somewhat hymn-like initially and noble and serene the dynamic level is set at piano and the upper strings begin muted while the lower strings employ pizzicato the first four bars are divided into two subphrases both ending on the dominant while these opening bars of the melody are judged by many to be among beethoven's most beautiful The harmony employed is initially mostly conventional, relying on common tonic, dominant, subdominant, and supertonic chords, the last mentioned built on the second scale degree in the key, all of these chords introduced in the first two bars. Beginning in the third bar, we hear a slightly more distinctive melodic phrase, moving up the scale by step before dropping a sixth and then another half step. The harmony is a bit more distinctive here as well highlighted by descending chromatic motion in the lower strings which yields a minor tonic chord and a secondary dominant seventh chord. I'm not suggesting that these chords are extraordinary or rare, but they do manage to inject a slightly emotional quality into the flow before the phrase concludes rather predictably on a dominant chord. Here are the first four bars. The next six bars introduce some new melodic ideas, the most distinctive of which begins with an ascending leap of a minor seventh before making its way back down more gradually to the starting point. This motive is heard at the beginning of measures five and repeated in measure six. Then, as the music crescendos, we're introduced to a new, more modest ascending three-note motive that is repeated multiple times with some variation. I say modest, but in fact Beethoven returns to this motive more than once as the movement unfolds to great effect. The woodwinds eventually join in to double the strings and the idea is extended for several measures, featuring a telling deceptive cadence along the way. The theme then concludes with a cadential tag that reiterates the tonic chord. Here's the second part of the theme starting in measure five, up to and including the repeated tag, which adds some bittersweet dissonance to the mood at the last minute. The piano enters very quietly in measure 16 with a series of mostly descending eighth note triplets marked Espressivo, tracing first a tonic and then dominant seventh chord, over a sustained string accompaniment for the first four bars. Eventually a more distinctive melodic shape emerges, one which echoes the ascending leap first heard in measures five and six. It's repeated twice, a step higher each time, and introduces a gentle dissonance on the second half of the measure as it descends down the scale. Another reminiscence from the opening melody. Here's the first part of this section. Near the end of my excerpt, you heard a return of the motive first heard in measures 7 and 8, that simple little melodic ascent of a third in quarter notes I mentioned earlier, but here modified to bring about a modulation to D major. That new key is now supported harmonically by the woodwinds, with the strings mostly relegated to occasional pizzicato downbeats, although oboes, horns, and bassoons later echo that same three-note motive I just mentioned. Here is a little of the new section in D major. That section ends with a series of chromatically ascending trills in the right hand, configured to return us to the key of B major, which it does through a series of secondary dominant chords. But we are going to pick up the flow a few measures later, where in B major, the piano presents its own ornamented version of the theme, cantabile, in block chords in the right hand, over arpeggios in the left, and pizzicatos in the strings. The melody continues in the strings under the gorgeous figuration patterns from the piano, and a few measures later, the woodwinds enter with their version of the melody back in B major. The music diminuendos to pianissimo with suggestions of the melody beneath the delicate 16th note figuration patterns in the piano, which eventually work their way down to the bass clef range. But the end of the movement presents some unexpected turns. The tonic note of B magically drops down a half step to B flat, which soon turns out to be the dominant in the new key of E flat major. And then we hear in the piano, pianissimo, a very peculiar little sneak preview of the rondo refrain to come in the next movement. We hear it in the piano in block chords in a halting and somewhat erratic rhythmic pattern before launching directly into the finale. In this work, Beethoven's fifth and final piano concerto, we've seen that the opening movement demonstrated many characteristics of Beethoven's heroic style, while the wonderful slow movement was alternately solemn and sensuous. So, what of the finale? Rondo finales are very typical for concertos, of course, and they are generally lighter movements compared to the ones preceding them. This rondo falls into that category although the form is by no means completely traditional and it is not without some martial qualities that may be seen as a nod back to the heroic posturing of the first movement. And even if it is not completely heroic, it is certainly boisterous. The movement is in E flat again 6 8 time and marked Allegro. The refrain theme, and we'll hear quite a bit of it before the movement is complete, is presented in the piano alone in thick block chords, fortissimo for the first two bars, with an offbeat accent. It's based on an ascending triad, hardly an unusual ploy, starting with the pickup note on the fifth of the scale and moving up, first in a pattern of four eighth notes, skipping an eighth note to provide a hint of syncopation, and then propelling upward even faster with four sixteenth notes until reaching the tonic note above. Here's a simplified version of the first half of the four-measure phrase, right-hand alone. The second half of the phrase jumps up a third higher and then begins a descent with the help of a new motive, up a third then down a step, two sixteenths to an eighth note, with eighth rests interspersed, alternating tonic and dominant chords, but ending on a dominant chord with a trill. Here's the first half of the phrase going to the second half. We'll call the initial triadic motive 1A and the second, up a third, then down a step, 1B, and we'll hear a lot of both of them. The first four bars are then repeated with a slight variation at the end of the fourth bar. Here's what it sounds like. What comes next is based on a chromatic descent starting from B-flat. We'll call it motive 1C employing the same rhythmic identity as 1b, 2 sixteenths followed by an eighth, but obviously with a very different effect, especially since we actually hear multiple chromatic descending lines at first, in the left hand accompaniment as well as the right hand, all of this over a dominant pedal. This chromatic descent lasts for two bars and is followed by a new phrase which moves back up diatonically to reorient the tonality with a clear 571 cadence. We'll refer to it as motive 1D. Here again is a simplified example, right hand only. The descending chromatic line 1C then restarts, but this time it doesn't lead into motive 1D but instead, the descending chromatic line is simply picked up and continued by the orchestra. Then the orchestra takes its turn with the theme, motives 1a, 1b, and 1c, after which motive 1d does make an appearance and is, in fact, repeated and varied slightly before cadencing on E flat. This is followed by a brief transition, another slightly different cadential pattern horns, trumpets, and timpani combining to make rather a martial impression before the pianist introduces the first episode. Here's a recording beginning with the restarting of the chromatic line I just referred to, the orchestra's version of the refrain melody, and continuing up to the transition and the entrance of the soloist. The pianist warms to the task of presenting the first episode with a flowing scale-wise passage in octaves played forte. When the first episode finally arrives, it's pianissimo and rather delicate. And it's still in E-flat major. If this were an orthodox rondo form, the first episode would probably be in the key of the dominant. If the movement were in customary sonata form, The second subject would probably be in the key of the dominant. Obviously, this movement is neither of those things. The new theme itself is characterized by an opening leap of a major sixth decorated with a turn, and then a gradual descent for three measures before a concluding leap up to the tonic note. The descent includes some chromatic motion, which creates in turn some unexpected chromatic chords. Here is the first four bar phrase following the scale wise introduction. While the first phrase mostly descends, the second moves higher and higher based on a series of expanding leaps. The orchestral accompaniment has been minimal to this point, but in the final measures, where the pianist pauses on a dominant seventh chord, the bassoon enters with a new counter-melody, two bars long and marked by a distinctive articulation pattern, one which is to play an important role in the retransition ahead. It's soon reinforced by the upper woodwinds, now forte, and then the pianist takes its turn fortissimo and embellished with a rapid multi-octave arpeggio meanwhile we're stopping briefly at some new key centers first c minor and then f major eventually the contour of the original countermelody is lost replaced by 16th note figuration patterns in the piano first softly but then crescendoing to fortissimo and then diminishing again at the last minute as we approach the return of the refrain, now clearly back in E-flat major. Here's an excerpt starting with the second part of the episode, including the counter-melody that emerges in the bassoon before it evolves into an actual retransition theme, shared by orchestra and soloist. After the transition, what we encounter is not simply the return of the refrain theme. It certainly starts out that way, the piano presenting a robust version of the theme in E flat major. But soon, motive 1D is broken off and tossed around. Sometimes it's repeated sequentially, sometimes just the rhythmic pattern associated with the motive is heard, and sometimes it's just the beginning of the motive. Sometimes we hear it in little snatches of imitation in the strings, against which the soloist launches a series of 16th note figuration and scale patterns which build up to some powerful sonorities. And this section is also development-like in that it has a tendency to flirt with other tonal areas, including C minor and later C major. But, of course, we have seen something very much like this before, since this movement is more of a sonata rondo than a straightforward rondo, and it's just this sort of development section in the middle of it that makes it a sonata rondo. Here's an excerpt beginning with the return of the refrain theme, followed by the beginning of the development section, concluding, in my excerpt, with the piano returning to the refrain theme in C major. Not a complete return, as you will hear the pianist goes off on a tangent pretty quickly before leading into a return of the first transition passage. next time we hear the refrain theme in the piano with orchestral accompaniment, it, or at least the first part of it, comes back very quietly in A-flat major, but again the theme disintegrates into a flow of swirling scale passages initially proceeding by half-steps. References to the refrain don't disappear completely, however, and of D in particular continues to play an important role. Soon the piano dominates once again as the refrain theme is again referenced, but this time in E major, which comes as just as much of a surprise as did the previous modulation. Here's an excerpt beginning with the refrain theme reference in a flat major, introduced by a brief linking passage from the horns, and continuing on to the second reference in E major. It's not that it's surprising to hear key shifts in the development section of a sonata rondo, but these are perhaps a little more persistent and abrupt than we're used to, including one very dramatic, if fairly brief visit, to E minor. At any rate, we finally find ourselves heading back in the direction of the original tonic key of E flat major and after a rhythmically staggered false return in the strings under an extended trill in the piano, we finally return to the refrain. The original episode eventually makes a return as well, at which point we might be inclined to think of this movement more as a sonata form than a roundel form, but these are labeling issues which Beethoven would not have thought worth discussing. For my last example, I'm going to jump all the way to the end of the coda. It's been mostly a very rousing one to this point, but now we encounter a very quiet passage, a duet between the soloist and the timpani, which taps out the dotted rhythms from motive 1D again and again. It's unusual, yes, but not completely unprecedented we've seen Beethoven give the timpani a solo role in unexpected places before. And although the instrument is played sempre pianissimo here, hardly an aggressive usage, I still think it's possible that it's meant to return our thoughts to the martial, even heroic elements from the first movement. While the finale is for the most part a jovial enough movement, it is by no means a trivial one, and the role of the timpani here reminds us of that fact. Here is the duet in question, followed by a final quote of the refrain theme and a mad dash to the final chords. It's no surprise that this concerto has been a great popular success almost from the beginning. In recent decades, Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, in G major, has provided a little more competition to the fifth in terms of the number of performances garnered, but the fifth continues to lead the way, probably because of its unique combination of virtuoso display and the sheer power of its musical personality. For our next episode, we'll look at string quartet number 10, opus 74, the so-called harp quartet, another work in E-flat major, completed in the very eventful year of 1809.